Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 7 through 14. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. And see, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. And among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them, will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and the herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. And I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty. All this declares the Lord. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I've been thinking a lot lately about what makes for a good victory party. Maybe it's because of the bowl season, in which there are certain victory celebrations that are a lot better than others. I would much rather have Cheez-Its dumped on me, or Frosted Flakes, as someone said at the early service, than that poor unfortunate soul who got a vat of mayonnaise poured all over him. Some victory celebrations are better than others. I've been thinking about what makes for a good victory party, I, maybe it's because of the goals I have for my coming year, and I'm trying to think about what will I do if I actually see them accomplished when I, when I get to them? How am I going to celebrate? How will I reward myself? How will I know and mark that milestone? Maybe, maybe I've been thinking about victory parties because I heard a comedian on a podcast recently suggest that every city needs a restaurant called Champions, a place that you can go with your kid's little league team or your sales department from your office or your kids on report card day and the idea behind the restaurant is that when you walk in it would basically be one giant locker room and you'd walk in and they'd hand you goggles and seltzer or champagne depending on the party and when you walk in you'd shake them up you'd spray it everywhere you'd go crazy just like you won the Super Bowl I've been thinking about what would make for a good victory party I think one thing that makes a victory party is the people you can't do a victory party by yourself. It's all made better if you're celebrating with people who have shared in the accomplishment with you, even more if they are people who have been supportive of you and whom you have supported, all of you having a common purpose. But another thing that makes a victory party a victory party is the element of surprise. A victory party is not a birthday party. 
It can't be for something that feels inevitable. A victory party cannot be something that was put on the calendar years in advance or could have been just as easily. You can't have a victory party for something that you knew was coming way ahead of time. You have to throw it while you're still surprised that you actually won the award or the election or the game. You can't wait too long for the victory party. But at the same time, you also can't throw it too soon. Because one essential element of a victory party is victory. Our resident Braves fan on the staff is Pastor Woods. And imagine if after game two this year, he had called everyone over to his house to have a celebration, a victory party for the World Series before the Braves had actually sewn it up. How many of you would have gone? Or imagine this week, if you saw someone walking around in an Alabama or Georgia shirt that said National Champion 2022, that's a good way to get beat up by your own fan base. Nobody wants you to jinx it. You can't throw the victory party too soon. You don't want to be like those politicians of the past who threw victory parties without the victory being confirmed. You don't want that photo of yourself beating someone else that turns out to have been a lie. And you definitely don't want to be like that famous saxophone player from Stanford who lined up in the end zone with the band back in the 70s, minding their own business as they prepared to go on the field and celebrate Stanford's victory over their hated rival, Cal, until suddenly Cal ran wild on a kick return. And the ball carrier David Moen famously plowed into the end zone as the band was there and knocked over that saxophone player who was there just to celebrate the win that never actually came. You don't want to be embarrassed. You don't want to look like a fool because you got ahead of yourself. You don't want to get your hopes up too much because as they say, it's the hope that kills you. That's how the Israelites felt. It's how they would have felt on hearing these words from the prophet Jeremiah when he urged the Jews in exile to celebrate and rejoice in a victory that they had not yet seen. As a bit of background, much of the Old Testament follows a pattern in which, of which this story is a part. A pattern in which the Israelites fall away from God and then God allows them to suffer the consequences of their own rejection of Him and they usually end up conquered by some foreign power until they turn back to God and God intervenes to save them from themselves and usually by some miraculous victory over that foreign power. This has happened over and over again in the, in the history of God's people, except that the last time it happened, before Jeremiah, it was the Assyrian Empire that came in and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, while the southern kingdom was spared. And God had made it known that there was no coming back for the northern kingdom. And even though they had this clear warning, even though they had seen the northern kingdom wiped off the face of the earth, the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, Jeremiah's home area, had fallen once more into the pattern of worshiping other gods. So God raised up a young prophet named Jeremiah, 
and set Jeremiah to the task of doing everything in his power to encourage the Jews to repent and worship the one true God. And for about 28 chapters, Jeremiah does everything in his power. His overall tomb is one of doom and gloom and death and destruction that will come. He says, you've seen what has happened. It can happen here too. Jeremiah becomes known as the weeping prophet because he goes on and on about the misery that is on the way. But no one seems to care about what he has to say. And through all those 28 chapters of doom and gloom, no one listens either to what he has to say or to what God has to say through him. Jeremiah prophesied that if the southern kingdom did not repent, then they would be conquered by a nation from the north, and eventually he is proven right. Israel does not repent. And the mighty Babylon sweeps in and conquers Israel, adds their territory to the enormous empire they are building, and worse yet, they drag the Jews away from their home in chains. And I suppose it's a matter of perspective as to whether the Babylonians were less cruel than the Assyrians. They did not wipe everyone out, did not put them all to the sword as the Assyrians did. But they did abduct them, lead them into exile, and then force them to conform to the Babylonian culture. Because it wasn't the Babylonian way simply to conquer you physically. No, they insisted on conquering you in every way possible spiritually mentally emotionally too you were to eat and dress and talk and worship like a babylonian the message of a babylonian conquest was essentially forget the god who failed you obviously our god works better so worship our gods they must be stronger or at least more practical that was the babylonian message and the jewish people are now living in exile banished from their own lives, from their marketplaces, from their worship life, from the temple itself. And some of them found it easiest just to go along to get along, to give up the old life. Maybe they even did it wholeheartedly. Maybe they felt like these Babylonian gods must give them more access to what they want out of life. Others were hanging on to their faith, but just barely. And some were resolved that no matter how bad things got, they would hold on to their faith and their identity. That's where the people of Israel are at the time of this letter from Jeremiah to the exiles, probably just a few years into what will be 70 years of exile on foreign soil. And if ever there was an I told you so moment, this is it. This ought to be Jeremiah's opportunity to say, I've been telling you for years. Nanny, nanny, boo-boo. I was right. You had it coming. I'm not even sorry. You got what you deserved. And yet when Israel is hauled away into exile, Jeremiah's letter takes a turn. And starting in Jeremiah 29, the weeping prophet is no longer spitting out prophecies of death and destruction, but of encouragement and promise and hope. He no longer tears down the people or describes the tearing down of Jerusalem, but instead he is devoted entirely to building up. Maybe you recognize the first chapter 
of this change of tone from Jeremiah 29 where he says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans for a hope and a future. You've heard it before. You've probably seen that verse over at Hobby Lobby emblazoned on every form of fabric and medium we could come up with. That word of hope comes from the weeping prophet. When he makes the turn, at the moment everyone else begins to despair, Jeremiah begins to preach hope. Which leads to the chapter we heard today, chapter 31, in which Jeremiah fills in the pieces of the puzzle. He describes exactly what that hope and that future that God has for them will look like. He describes a day when there will be no more mourning in Zion, when all tears will be turned into dancing, when weeping will be praying, and the lost sheep will be gathered again. And it's going to be great. Which is nice. When we are going through hard times, we like to know they will not last forever. We like to know that one day we'll be on the other side. One day, all the good stuff will come back or even be made new. And we like to hear that promise from somebody who's proven reliable. Someone like Jeremiah, who had a pretty solid record in the prediction game. But the verses we read today take it a little bit beyond mere encouragement. Jeremiah gives the people of Israel a command. Sing. Sing for joy. And shout for the foremost of nations. What? The foremost of nations? Really? Is that what you would call the people who've been thoroughly conquered, driven into exile, the walls of whose capital city no longer stand tall but are scattered on the ground as though, so that there is no longer one stone left on top of another. This is the foremost of nations? This is what they are supposed to sing and shout about? They're still in the exile. They'll be in the exile for a long time to come. There are no signs it is going to end anytime soon. We're not even in the playoffs yet, much less the Super Bowl. So how dare we throw a victory party? What right does anyone have to sing? Why would you praise God before he has saved you? Jeremiah doesn't explain his timing. He just seems to assume it's the right thing to do. But as we look at the larger biblical story, we can find at least three biblical reasons for God's people to celebrate a little bit earlier than anyone else ever does. First, the foundation of the victory is that God is faithful. And when we say God is faithful, what we mean is very particular, it's very specific. What we mean is that God keeps God's promises. That's what it means that God is faithful. If God has promised it, it is as certain as if it is already accomplished. Some of God's promises are fulfilled quickly. Some of them unfold over a millennia or more. But the promises are true and God is true to the promises. God does not have good intentions. God does not try his best to do what he promised. God just does it. And God will do. 
whatever God has promised. So we can celebrate before the promise is fulfilled because the promise is as certain as the deed itself. But that raises the question of how can we know which promises to trust? How can we know which promises are from God? So the second reason that the people of Israel have to celebrate beyond God's faithfulness is the track record of the prophets. The prophets were those who staked their reputation on speaking the truth in ways that other people could verify, not just once, but over and over. And think about how different that is from our own day and time. Think about how often we choose to pe follow people who make the biggest promises or the loudest promises rather than the most reliable ones. We've grown so accustomed to sales pitches and to politics as usual that we rarely ask whether anyone has actually accomplished what they promised. We hardly expect anyone to live up to their promises. We mostly just ask, not whether our promise is true, but whether it feels right. Whether it's what we want to believe. But throughout the scriptures, we find hundreds of prophets whose word is fulfilled again and again. And in Jeremiah's case, the Jews had good reason to be confident in what Jeremiah was telling them. He had told them that doom was coming when it wasn't what his own people wanted to hear. And now he's telling them again what they did not expect, but they could rely on. So Israel can go ahead and party because God's promise is as good as our deeds and because the prophets were reliable messengers of God's word. And the third thing that Israel could celebrate was their own response because at the end of the day, it wasn't about getting back to Jerusalem or rebuilding the temple. If it was the worship of false gods that got Israel into this mess, then the hope, the joy, the celebration, the thing they should be longing for is the day they return to God. The point of everything was not to get back to Israel. The point was to get back to God. And Jeremiah's message is that even in the exile, God is with you, and today can be the day that you turn. Even in exile, they could worship the one true God. And if they learn to do that, then even in exile, they have already won. And everything else is just the after party. After parties can be good too. But the building of Jerusalem, the return home, all of that is just the after party. The true victory is knowing who is worthy of our worship. Most of us here are very fortunate this morning. We've not been conquered or forcibly removed from our homes. But the world has experienced its own kind of exile. And we have a hard time planning or promising anything too far in advance these days. And even when things feel like they're getting back to normal, they aren't. It's hard to get back to old habits, even healthy ones. Even when the world around us feels a little bit more normal, we find it hard for us to get back to normal, to, to let go of some things. And just because we do doesn't mean everyone else will. 
And then just as soon as we think it's back to normal, something changes again. And through it all, we're learning that some of our deepest issues are psychological and they are social. They are about bonds of trust that are broken. They are about our own habits of thought. Mental health is in a sad place these days. Suicide, depression, anxiety through the roof. Those things are not easily fixed. But what if we, like Jeremiah and his friends, knew we had a promise, a promise from God, that we could celebrate and praise God for and lean into with unyielding faith? What if we could be a light for the world, that even in the darkest moments, the light is not overcome, and there is still good news? And though it may not all be accomplished yet, the promise is as good as the deed in God's timing. Today is Epiphany, the day the wise men discover Jesus. And Matthew describes the scene When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And then on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The joy began before they even saw him. The wise men were not Jews. They didn't know the old promises, but they still recognized the signs of the king. And they were willing to pick up their lives and travel from their homes, not for their own enjoyment or prosperity, but for the joy of worshiping the one who was worthy of it. They gave gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, but those were just tangible signs of the worship behind it all. They praised Jesus, the God made flesh, and they didn't even know the backstory of God's redeeming work of Israel. They didn't know what was to come about his death and his resurrection. To them, the discovery was worth celebrating right then and there, the sign of what would be. Matthew says they were overjoyed just by the sight of the star before they even met Jesus. And aren't we longing for an epiphany today? What would it look like for us to celebrate early and know there's no chance of being embarrassed? What would it look like for us to be overjoyed by the faithfulness of God, by His breaking into the brokenness of the world, seeing glimpses of the bright future we have in Christ's ultimate victory, which is already here but also not yet? We can celebrate through worship, by gathering, or worshiping even at home. We can celebrate by reading scripture and remembering the victories that have been accomplished so we can look forward to those to come. We celebrate by simply receiving communion, in which we say we receive a foretaste of the heavenly banquet to come. We celebrate by celebrating the poor or encouraging the poor in spirit by being fervent in our prayer for the sick with the confidence that we serve a God who can and will heal and that one day every tear will be wiped away, the lowly lifted up, and sorrow will be no more. We can celebrate what will be right here and now by being the incarnation of Jesus Christ in a broken world. 
in a world of digital exile, of brokenness and isolation, we can be the hands and feet and the eyes and ears of Jesus Christ, fully present to those around us. And maybe today can be a victory party, even in the midst of exile. Yes, our world is broken, same as it ever been. And yes, there is still so much uncertainty and sickness and pain as there ever has been. And no, we don't know who's going to win the national championship or how many waves of COVID there are ahead of us this year. But we know this, that Jesus Christ is the divine word made flesh. And that you and I are his body, broken for the world. And that one day Jesus will have that final victory and we will have a true victory party, the biggest one of all time. But today and now and in this year, we can sing for joy and we can praise God for his goodness and his promises. We can take a victory lap even now because the victory is already won. And every time we see the merest hint of it, we can sing out and say there is more to come. And we can celebrate the salvation of the world. Jesus Christ, the one who was and is and is to come. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.